0: Good morning. How are we all doing today? Good. Super excited to be up here. Uh, Super stoked to bring the word to you today. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael. Um, I've grown up in this church and uh, I'm currently attending university at the University of Saskatoon, taking business. And uh, Darren asked me a little while ago if I would... uh, bring the message to you guys today, and I was more than excited to do that. Um, Before we start on today's, I would just like to back up a little bit. If you'll remember uh, last week's sermon that Darren brought, uh, whether you're in person watching it, whether you came in and uh, tuned in online, um, I know I was watching it from my bedroom in Saskatoon. Um, That was the first uh, 18 verses of uh, chapter 5 of John. John. Now, in the first 15 verses, Jesus heals a man who'd been crippled for 38 years. Now, that's nearly like twice my age. That's a long time. Jesus says to the man, Pick up your mat and walk, and he does. He walks away. See, the problem with that was that it was on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees mention when talking to the man about why he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And then he points them to Jesus, and they bring this up later on in verse 16 and they seem to have a big problem with it. You know, rather than focusing on the miracle, the religious leaders focus on everything in contrast with their long-standing traditions, and to them, healing was in conflict with their rules. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. If you look, look at Luke 13, uh, Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. If you look at Matthew 12, uh, Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand. And he says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, "If any of you has a sheep and it falls out into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." Now, if you remember from last week, uh, Jesus says that, uh, sorry, Jesus says that his father is at work on the Sabbath and healing. Is the work of God. In the case of John chapter 5, Jesus seems here to be intentionally going out of his way to anger and provoke the Pharisees. By getting them to confront him, he has a chance to highlight the hypocrisy in their claims and to reveal the contrast in their belief in God and in Jesus' truth. The Pharisees, in response to Jesus' miracle, they're angered, they're so mad. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And rather than search for the source that allows a son of man to perform such works, they immediately criticize Jesus for breaking their traditions. Now Jesus begins his defense with an appeal to the Father. This is one of the many places in Jesus' life that is a clear presentation of a divine Jesus. In this claim, Jesus not only states that God is his Father, but that his Father is also at work on the Sabbath verse 18 shows the Jewish people knew exactly what Jesus was implying. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. He is at work like his father. Not only that, but his work is equivalent because, well, Jesus is God. And as we know, This claim angers the Pharisees because if it's untrue, it's blasphemy. Jesus then goes on to explain his divinity. Uh, He introduces this section by repeating the word amen, or uh, often translated as truly, or truly I tell you. Using such a word at the end of a statement in that day was a way of declaring the truth of the statement. Uh, This word survived use in lots of other languages, and many people still and prayers with the word "amen." Uh, using such a phrase at the beginning of a statement, however, implied that what being said was first-hand information. This was used for original teaching or first-hand accounts. When Jesus says, "Truly, truly I tell you," or "Truly I say to you," he is claiming to know these things personally, directly, and firsthand. The first way that Jesus says of his divinity is through his works. He works in submission to the Father. So anything he does must be in accordance with the will of God, and anything he does is equivalent to the work of God. Okay, so point one, Jesus, kind of elaborating on his divinity, is through his works. Numero two, through love. For God the Father, the Son, for for the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does, and yet. He will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Jesus is saying that he has equivalent love to the Father. Jesus says in the next verse that he has the power of judgment on mankind. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus performs miracles on the Sabbath he says to the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. When the Pharisees confront the man, he points them to Jesus, who essentially says to them in a little bit more of an elaborate way, me and my father are one. They are one in their works, and they are one in their love. Anything that Jesus does has to be in accordance with the will of God, because the father and the son do the same things. Just as Jesus healed on the Sabbath, So the Father was working too. He says, though, that isn't enough. You do all these things, follow all these laws, keep all these traditions to avoid judgment from God. You're so concerned with keeping the Sabbath that it doesn't even faze you that a man who was laid up by the pool for 40 years now just has a clean bill of health. All these things the Pharisees do to avoid God's judgment. And Jesus said, God isn't even the one who judges you. I am. I have been entrusted by God, you claim to follow, to bring all judgment. And not just one or two trials, maybe, and it's not like they're splitting the work evenly. All judgment. Now, I don't want to speculate into what Jesus said that wasn't recorded in the Bible, because well, that's bad, but... Uh, If I were in that situation, I would pause and I would look at every single one of the religious leaders in front of me, and I'd be like, your judgment, your judgment, your judgment has all been entrusted to me by the Father. Verse 23 says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus here just ties it all together having laid claim to his divinity through his works, through his love, and through his judgment, he then says here that he deserves the same honor as God the Father because Jesus actually is God. This is crucial in understanding our salvation, especially for the audience that Jesus was talking to at the time. If Jesus is worthy of and owed the same honor as God the Father, then one cannot reject the Son And be right with the Father. This is in line with other times that Jesus says that He is the only way to God and to salvation. The Pharisees attempted to achieve salvation through works, by upholding the law, as many do today. Through good works, many people believe that they can achieve salvation, whether Christian or another religion or not religious at all. It's a common theme. Believe that good works can achieve you salvation. But believing that there are many ways to God and to be saved is dishonoring to him. It's calling him a liar. Similarly, downgrading Jesus to anything less than divine, rejecting him as the Messiah to simply a prophet or a teacher, is to reject God and his testimony. Here, Jesus claims to have equivalent qualities to God the Father. This is meant to be understood in the same context as Jesus' claim in all the verses. The relationship between Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father, is one of perfect harmony. The problem facing the Pharisees and the Sadducees was spiritual blindness. In Matthew 23, verse 17, he calls them blind fools. This blindness creates a wall of separation between them and between God. Their actions did not reflect the actual will of the Father. Jesus, on the other hand, is in a state of perfect love and communion with God. As a result, his actions are identical to the will of God. We see again in the passage, once more, very truly I tell you, first-hand knowledge from Jesus. Jesus. Very truly I tell you, I am the only way to salvation and I have power over life and death. We've, seen, we've just seen Jesus prove earlier in the same chapter when he heals the lame man, that he has power over life and death. And he will say it again later on when, plug your ears if you don't like spoiler alerts, he raises Lazarus from the dead and eventually conquers death itself when he finishes his ministry on earth. And then the best part Jesus will call all the dead from their graves for the final day of judgment. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me now moving forward through the chapter, we kind of change direction a little bit. Jesus goes from proving his divinity in the previous verses to now talking about testimony about himself, and uh, this isn't something that I've just you know made up or some astute observation i've made. Um, if your Bible has these little titles written above it uh, for the different sections um, It'll say something along those lines. My specific NIV Bible that I grabbed here from the youth room before the service started because I forgot mine on my dresser at home, uh, it says for the first section of verse 16, the authority of the son, and then down to verse 31, testimonies about Jesus. So it's pretty clear that there is a change of direction. Now, to me, it seems like two separate sermons which, if I'm going to be honest, was kind of the hardest part when I was writing the message to share with you this morning. Um, When I first got the, you know, passage of scripture that I was to speak on, I was like, saw saw the length of it. I was like, yeah, I can do this, you know, like 30 verses, that's not too bad, like I can make that work. Long passage, but I think I can do it. And then under my first read-through I was like, "Yo, Darren, like, did you mean to give me two separate sermons? Um, like, is there uh, is the service kind of kind of empty this morning? Am I am I speaking once? We're gonna have some music. Speak again? <clears throat> like, my two sermons on the same Sunday? But it does all draw back together. So just bear with me for a moment. We'll get there. Moving on, John five verse thirty one. Jesus is still speaking. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, I'm going to pause on that for just a minute because that one really confused me when I first read it. Now, going through a passage to write a message makes me look deeper into the verses themselves and spend more time looking at the individuals rather than my usual when I look at the book of the passage as a whole. I should say that's for myself. I tend to le- read a little bit more holistically, as I'm sure many of you are different. But when I was looking at this verse. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, I've read John 5 before, and I know the story, but I've never noticed the specific verse. So I had to look it up because it really just had me stumped. I'm sure lots of you already know the answer or have figured it out already as I've been rambling here, uh, but there's, here's a little bit of tidbit of history for those of you who are in the same spot that I was. Jesus says, verse 31 and 32, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Now, Jesus is not saying here that his testimony is untrue. As we know, Jesus' testimony is the truth. But it has to do with the Old Testament Jewish court. According to Old Testament Jewish legal procedure, a person could not testify on their own behalf. A creative liar can make up pretty much anything. Nor could a single witness testify and establish facts. Rather, in a formal courtroom settings, uh, two or three witnesses were required. Uh, We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and Numbers chapter 35. So later in the gospel, Jesus makes the point that there are some facts that only he can testify about. Um, You see that in like John chapter 8. In this context, however, the claims he makes can be verified by normal means of evidence. And uh, so it's reasonable that he provides this evidence. So this passage is extremely important in discussions of biblical faith. Jesus makes no appeal to have blind faith, uh, nor does he tell the Pharisees to believe just because he said so. He doesn't dismiss the need for evidence. Rather, he provides reasons why faith in his message is reasonable. Jesus fulfills the normal human requirements of evidence by giving three separate lines of evidence to prove his claims. These three categories of human testimony in the form of John the Baptist in verse 33, observations in the form of his miracles, uh, see him in verse 36, and of scripture, he says in verse 39. Jesus will use these arguments to complete his response to the Jewish authorities persecuting him for claiming to be equal with God. Verse 33 says, You have sent to John, and he has testified the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave you light, and for a moment you chose to enjoy his light. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here, hey, I know I can't testify about myself, so I sent you John the Baptist. He sent John the Baptist to speak the truth, to testify to the legitimacy of the life and works of Jesus the Messiah. And John spent how long baptizing and preaching and prophesying and testifying? Even though there's a human witness, Jesus says that there's another source that's so much greater. See, humans can lie, you know, make up stories, uh, exaggerate the truth, or if you believe something with you know, your whole being to be true, it might not be simply just don't know all the facts. So aside from John the Baptist, from this human testimony, we have other ways to verify what Jesus is saying. Looking back now in third person, and maybe a little bit biased, I can't understand how the Pharisees missed this. But looking at my life now, maybe it makes a little bit more sense. Jesus says to them, I have power over life and death. To prove that, he heals a man that has been lame for thirty-eight years. Again, that's twice as long as I've been on this earth. I feel like I've lived a pretty long life already. That's just that's half as long. Jesus just heals him, gets up, walks away. And what do the Jewish leaders do? They accuse Jesus of breaking Sabbath law and call him a liar or claiming to be the Son of God. Did they not see what just happened? Jesus said he had power over life and death. He just proves it, and the religious leaders choose to ignore it. Jesus goes on, if they don't want human testimony or miracles, surely the word of God is a strong enough witness. They'll see then. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. We see John's testimony, we see the miracles. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. The scripture that they hold so close, the scripture every single member of his audience had memorized. Word for word, the scripture they probably mumbled in their sleep. We all know it was written about Jesus and they failed to see that. We see here again the perfect relationship between Jesus the Son and God. The Father is one of perfect harmony. See, the problem facing the Pharisees, again, was spiritual blindness. This blindness created a wall of separation between them and God. Their actions did not reflect the actual will of the Father, Jesus, on the other hand, is in a state of perfect love and communion with God. As a result, his actions are identical to the will of God. Jesus first references human testimony from John the Baptist, then references a much more powerful evidence, which is firsthand observation. And in this case, that means the miracles that he was performing. And now Jesus offers to the Jewish authorities what should be the most powerful testimony of all, the written word of God. This testimony, though, it's lost on Jesus' critics. According to Christ, these men have never heard the voice of God. They certainly knew the words and the letters of the law. So how is it possible that they didn't recognize Jesus? The answer is one that we as human beings naturally reject, but which experience and history tells us is true. Knowledge is not the same as faith. James, for example, makes the point that merely knowing about God is not the same as having faith in God. We see in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose their brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does not do anything about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believe that. The scripture says that the Pharisees knew scripture inside and out, but they've never heard from God. I often get this idea that the Jewish people or the religious leaders, the people who were hard stuck on tradition, that they just didn't know any better. You know, they were uninformed. They didn't have all the necessary evidence that Christ was the Messiah. But the fact of the matter is, they weren't uninformed. They had the evidence. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They heard testimony from people like John the Baptist. They had memorized the words of God concerning the coming of the Messiah. Prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. But they still refused to believe. This is a perfect example of why God doesn't provide Proof of the legitimacy of scripture and its existence, power, etc. The Pharisees have all the evidence and testimony they could ask for, yet they still don't believe. Verse 41 I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your heart. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes, in his own name, you will accept them. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek glory that comes only from God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me, but since you do not believe what he wrote, How are you going to believe what I say? By rejecting Jesus, the religious leaders are ultimately rejecting God because Jesus and God are one. In verse 41, when he says, I do not accept glory from human beings, Jesus is saying that, well, of course, he accepts the praise from those who follow him. He doesn't need glory from humans because what he says is the truth either way. You know, he isn't salty that the, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other Jewish officials don't accept his message because his word is the truth. If someone came accepting praise from humans, someone came like the Pharisees and claimed to be Messiah, they would believe him too, uh, because he would reaffirm the traditions that they hold. But by rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God because Jesus and God are. Ultimately, one cannot truly love God if they ignore his words or his messenger. The opening lines of the Gospel of John describe Jesus as a light who came into the world. The reason the men reject this light is not because they can't see it, it's because they choose to stay in the darkness. The Bible is clear that those who truly seek God will accept Christ because he is the one and only way to be reconciled to the Father. Any claims these men made to loving God were contradicted by their actions and their refusal to accept God's Son. So now, to the ultimate question, how does this apply to us today? And to me, that answer lies in the original audience of the book of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John chapter 20, verse 31, the final verse of John. So John is not mounting up his indictments here for nothing. He is going somewhere. He's doing something for our faith, for your faith right now. He wants this analysis of unbelief to penetrate into our hearts and reveal one of the deepest causes of unbelief. As a whole, the gospel was written to Christians to confirm and secure their faith. This was written to Christians, probably in Asia Minor, but we can't really confirm that. Um, But it was to reaffirm that Jesus is equal to God in works, love, judgment, and honor. I'd say that's pretty clear throughout the entire gospel, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if you've read any of the four Gospels, whatever translation, you've most likely came across the same conclusion. However, this passage is just one example in history that proves that knowledge is not faith, and belief is not faith. The Jews have all this knowledge. They know what the scripture says, word for word. They've heard it from eyewitnesses, they've seen the miracles yet they still don't have faith. They don't have faith in God because they reject his very own testimony. And sometimes it's like that for us, isn't it? We get so wrapped up in the traditions or the legality or the human praise or whatever it is, like the Jewish leaders, that we forget that the Son of God has gone ahead and died for us. I mentioned earlier that this is why God doesn't give proof, you know, people say, you know, if God would just prove himself, I would believe, or whatever iteration of that there is. But the thing is, he already provided the proof. There's witness accounts from 2,000 years ago to from just yesterday. There's miracles. There's an entire book, a big book, full of proof. And we just need to choose to listen. Now, I know I've uh, been up here for a little while. But i got one last thing to say, so just bear with me for a little bit longer. Uh, I promise I'll get over your hair soon. But uh, when I go to write a sermon, or I go to write a message, I sometimes don't really feel like I'm good enough because I'm working through it. I end up learning more than what I thought I knew before. And I'm like, how am I supposed to teach this to people if I don't even know it? But I think it's a good thing. I think if we think we know everything, then we shouldn't really be up here. But what I learned... From this week, from reading this guy right here, and from working through the book of John. And it's crazy sometimes how stuff just fits together and clicks, and how different parts of your life uh, teach you the same thing at the same time. Um, and that really makes you listen. But sometimes I think that I read this more like a textbook. Or if you aren't a student like me, maybe more like a good novel, like the Pharisees were reading it, like a book of rules, or like, you know, a historical book that just teaches us facts. But really, this is a way to communicate with God. This is a way, this is a first-hand way to communicate with the Father and have that discourse back and forth. It's not just a textbook to read, to get information from, it's living, it's the living word of God. And I think that's so important to remember.
1: Let's make some noise in this place. Here we go. Amen. Amen. Like, how about that? Life. I love this. I love this chapter because it just, it just, it binds together so many things. I was getting ready to do the benediction. Like, when I'm listening to the message, I'm thinking, okay, how do you, how do you encourage the church? How do you wrap it together? And I go to uh, John 20, and Michael's like, all right, now to finish, John 20. I'm like, no, that's the scripture I picked to read at the end. He nailed it. Oh, he stole it. That's not fair. He's good. Why did John write this letter? Because people needed life. Jesus gives life. Life to Nicodemus. Life to the woman at the well. Life to the man at the pool. Offers life to the Pharisees. Life to Lazarus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And there's nothing in this world that's ever been made that he wasn't a part of making. Life. And John ends his gospel by saying, The whole point of me recording all these stories is that you may believe in him and experience life. It is all about life. And we, as a church family, can get sucked into the knowledge of him without living in the life of him. And that's not the point. And Michael just so clearly made that evident to you through John's gospel, the same message. This is supposed to be life-giving. This relationship with our dad is supposed to be life-giving. You should be a different person once you've come back to life. That's why we sing. That's why we do this. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why the cross is on the stage. Because that gave us back our life by taking away our death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Wow, wow, we have so much to be thankful for. Thank you for the reading of your word and how powerful it is. Thank you that this morning you used Michael to read your word. Thank you. Thank you that this morning, Lord Jesus, your word speaks powerfully like it did 2,000 years ago. Thank you. And thank you that this church family is a group of people who are not just filled with knowledge. We have experienced life. That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we sacrifice. That's why, that's why this is worth laying down our lives for because we have been given back our lives. Lord, would we and would I never forget that. You are the one who spoke this world into creation and you will speak it out. And I get to live now in that life. Lord Jesus, would you receive all the honor and glory that the Pharisees missed but that you deserve. You are the author of life. So thank you for the chance to go through your word to sing about that this morning. This hour and a half was for you. Our lives are for you. So we want to thank you for all of this. In your powerful name, amen. Amen. We're going to have a little church meeting here in a couple minutes. If you're interested in that, you can stay. Wow. Thank you, Jesus.